Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Orn. Welcome to Founders and Friends podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Patrick Lee of Top Corner Capital. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. So Patrick and I have been friends for many, many years. Too many too many to tell. Um, uh, but I thought, Patrick, you maybe start off by just saying, you know, retracing your career a little bit and telling everyone how you had the idea for Top Corner Capital. Sure. So going way back, I grew up in Montreal. Uh, came down, worked on Wall Street for a while, went back to business school. Then I moved out to the Valley 25 years ago and joined an amazing firm called Hamerton Quist. Very fortunate timing, also just fortunate to join an absolutely wonderful firm. That's where Scott and I met. We both worked at Hamerton Quist together. And I basically spent the first 10 years of my career there, initially doing a bit of everything, banking, investing, and then ultimately raising a venture equity fund within Hamerton Quist and deploying actually two funds within that platform, uh, but purely on the venture equity side. We were then acquired by JP Morgan uh, and our fund got subsumed into what was then called JP Morgan Partners. Um, so that was a much bigger private equity focused and venture. Um, I remained as part of the team doing venture early stage equity uh, on the West Coast and basically ran the software practice for JP Morgan Partners for several more years. When the bank, it was clear the bank after the bubble burst in 2000 was going to get out of the venture business, I started thinking about the next thing I could be doing. I was lucky enough to meet another H&Q person who helped me with getting introduced to a brand new venture debt fund, an industry I didn't know about at the time. And that firm was called Pinnacle Ventures. And so I joined another H&Q colleague of mine there. Uh, and that was the first fund there. And that was a lot of fun, uh, just a brand new fund learned a lot about venture debt, and I ended up spending eight years there. And then I was approached by WTI, or Western Technology, which is one of the, the granddaddies of the venture debt space. Um, and I joined them uh, after eight years and then spent the next seven years as a partner with WTI, again, doing venture debt. So when I look back, having moved out to the Valley 25 years ago, the first 10 was pure equity, and the last 15 years has been venture debt with two wonderful firms and funds. And that led me to saying, um, I work and love working with entrepreneurs every day, but 
um, I thought to myself, well, wow, I could do this myself. Um, <laughs> totally. Well, I had the same thing. That's why I joined Vanessa. It's like you, you, you're living vicariously through a lot of entrepreneurs and you can't help but want to try it yourself, you know? Yeah. And I'd always wanted to start my own firm. I mean, and that's the, the genesis of Top Corner is I'd always wanted to do, to be an entrepreneur, to start my own company and to start my own fund. And I, and I felt after getting 25 years of experience, I, I felt I finally had the experience I needed to do that. And so this year, 2020, I launched uh, Top Corner Capital. Had no idea COVID was going to hit us. But uh, despite that, I raised my fund uh, during these uh, troubled times. And and now I've closed that fund. And so uh, now we're Top Corner Capital is actively investing and deploying capital. And I have an absolutely wonderful set of LPs. And, and I'm building a ton of new relationships as well as my existing. The other thing that's helped me is obviously having 25 years of a network and relationships and entrepreneurs and venture folks and so on. And folks like Scott and others uh, who've known me a long time, it, it's a great way to be able to approach them and say, hey, I'm doing this now. And uh, it's not something brand new, but it's something a little bit different than I was doing before. But it's been absolutely, I'm having a blast uh, being an entrepreneur and again, talking to entrepreneurs and being able to tell them, I know exactly how you feel when you're and what you're going through because I'm going through it. And yeah, uh, that's so powerful to have that kind of common bond with them and for them to know that you're doing it too. I, I got to say, because we caught up a couple of weeks ago, I'm so impressed that you're able to raise your fund during like literally the heart of COVID. Like, you know, I don't know how you, I don't know how you did it. Like, was there any, is there any like learnings from the audience of for, for the audience? Like what was the magical touch there? Well, I don't think anyone can prepare themselves for a period like we're going through now with COVID. So I, I don't think that's, and I, and I think I actually started fundraising in March, uh, which couldn't have been a worse month in the history to start anything. But um, I would say be prepared, come up with a strategy, stick to your knitting. I didn't deviate from, the strategy of the fund from the LPs I wanted to approach from what I was saying, the value proposition, if anything, the silver lining throughout, not at the beginning of the fundraising process, but as time went on and I started realizing that COVID actually might be very helpful uh, to me because my product is even more powerful and more impactful in this environment. And everyone wants, there's so much uncertainty, they want a little bit more capital, a little bit more cushion. They, the bar for the next round is higher. And so all those factors, when you add them up, makes venture debt, especially at the early stage, even more critical. And that's really resonating now. And, and that's the other thing I would just say is, you know, keep your eye on the ball, stick to your strategy. And that actually helped fundraising because I was able to tell people, hey, I actually think, I actually added a slide to my deck that basically said, here are the impacts of COVID on my fund. And they're actually mostly positive. Yeah. You know, the, the, there are a few negatives, obviously. You can't meet people as easily. You can't, you know, if it's a brand new person you've never seen before and you're trying to invest in them, that's a little harder. But but all the other reasons, you know, having a fresh new fund with no baggage, you know, I'm not triaging any portfolio that most other funds are. I'm not um, in a position where I'm feeling any kind of pressure to have to do things faster or bigger. And then, as I said before, the, the bar is higher, so people need more capital. No one wants to set valuation right now with COVID uh, unless you want to take some sort of hit. And so, again, venture debt doesn't touch valuation. And then having an extra million or two million bucks in the bank 
with these uncertain times and either giving yourself more runway or growing faster, or if something is really working in COVID, then it's even more impactful than they can get yeah. extra capital. And it's, it's not easy to get, particularly at the earlier stages. And that's the last point I'd say is that my strategy of, of keeping it early stage, I think most people are gravitating to, you're reading about the later stage stuff that's already proven. And that's where the feeding frenzy is because there's a few really good deals out there that everyone wants to get into. It's harder to figure that out at the earlier stage. Yeah, that's such a great synopsis. And, you know, when I asked that question, I hadn't really thought that COVID could help you, but you're exactly right. Like extending your runway is just incredibly valuable at that moment. So like, that's just so smart. Maybe you can kind of, for because there might be some people who are listening to this for the first, like hearing the term venture debt for the first time. Can you kind of give a quick, like the 30 second explanation of what venture debt is? Sure. I mean, it, it does mean a lot of different things to different people, but the core thesis is it's and the core business that I'm in is it's a term loan, typically a three plus year loan that's given to a company. Um, there's an interest rate associated with it. Um, there's warrants associated with it. It's completely flexible the way I'm doing it at top corner. There's no covenants. There's no restrictions. There's no MAC clauses. The, comp- the capital can be used just like a dollar of equity. And so most entrepreneurs look at this and say, well, I can get a dollar of equity or a dollar of venture debt, but the cap- cost of capital for that's far less expensive. Uh, there's still some dilution with the warrants, but it's far less than pure equity. I don't have to set valuation. Um, I can use it any way I want. It's not tied to a specific asset or has to be deployed. And again, there's no restrictive covenants around it. And so that's that's the way I'm doing it. So that's my version of venture debt. But that's that's a very typical structure in this space. And, um, and companies love using it. They just if it's used properly, everybody wins. The entrepreneurs, the founders, the the employees win. The the venture investors win because they're levering their investment. Um, and then obviously the venture debt firm that's giving them capital wins as well if if everything works out and everyone makes. And so the ideal scenario is is a win for all all the people around the table. And that's the perfect venture debt deal. Um, they don't always work out that way, but they should. Uh, and that's how they should look. Yeah. Your point about like, if you take the right amount of capital and not taking too much, I used to always tell people like three to six months runway. Like you don't want to like over leverage the company. Cause like sometimes you'll get people who are like, give me as much as, as much as possible on a year, you know, a year's worth of runway in debt. I just don't think that's very healthy. One of the things I like about your fund at the early stage is it's kind of self-regulating. Like there's less of a temptation for you to give a startup too much money. And there's less of a temptation for a startup to take too much money because they know they're going to have to, you know, they know they need to go back to the capital markets pretty soon anyways. So it feels like a really, really nice place to play in the venture debt ecosystem. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. It's, uh, that's exactly right. You don't see, you don't lend a lot of money to an early stage company. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you're right. If someone says, hey, I just want to buy one month of runway, that really doesn't make sense. So I think you're right in that three to six month time frame. Although I, there are some companies that approach me and they don't necessarily want to extend the runway. They want to grow faster. They think every dollar I invest in my Salesforce or you know, acquiring a customer is accelerating my revenue and I know the ROI on that dollar. And so I may have the same runway, but I actually think I can grow twice as fast if I have more capital now. Hence, I can still raise my next round on the same time frame, but at a better valuation because I've 
I've increased my numbers by so much. So it's it's either one, it's one or the other, or it could be both. You could be accelerating them and giving them more runway, which is like yeah. the best. I love the accelerating runway ones the best personally, just because that's the point where the entrepreneur knows they've got something. Like when they're willing to hit that gas pedal down because the metrics or just like the customer feedback are working so well. And you're right. Like the whole idea is that you can just increase your valuation so much more by boosting that, that growth rate. So I, I think that's like the best use case. I love it. Yeah. Or you tap into better investors or get better terms or yeah, just have a more successful financing or you just give yourself more time to do that. And therefore you can do other things if you're preoccupied with, with running your business. So some people just want, Hey, I want to put my head down and run my business. What's, what's the typical, like the typical setup for a deal? Like what, what stage, like you're early, but maybe just for the audience, spell it out a little bit. Is it seed series A and how much are the companies looking for, for, for top corner? Yeah, sure. So I'm telling everyone it's seed and series A and really the earlier series A's. And, and there's a bit of semantics here. The, the nomenclature is a seed round, a series A round. Ironically, 15 years ago, when I entered this business, the Series A deal is what a seed deal looks like today. It used to be a five on five. Yeah. A five on five was a very typical deal that you'd see. And so a $5 million Series A was pretty typical. You're seeing a lot of these $5 million seed rounds. So it's a little bit of semantics. But I would say a company that has raised at least $3 million of equity, um, maybe as much as $5 million of equity, uh, that's a, I would say, down the middle seed deal for me, um, has an investor that hopefully I know or know of or trust. Um, and they have some skin in the game. They typically you know, take a board seat. This is some party round where a bunch of people throw money together and there's really no one accountable. Um, so those are sort of the dynamics. And then I'm lending on that basis somewhere between a half a million and three million. So if it's if it's someone who's raised just three million, maybe that's 500K or 750K. But if it's someone who's raised $5 million, then maybe it's a million, maybe as much as a million and a half. And obviously if they raise six or more, uh, you can increase that that level. And so that's sort of more the typical how I'm defining early stage. Uh, and I would say the last point is they, they usually have runway. Uh, so I'm not funding companies that are running out of money tomorrow. So they usually have, on average, 15, 18 months of runway. And they're really thinking about how do I get to two years of runway, uh, for instance, if they have you know 18 months of runway. How do I really push that runway out? Or how do I just grow faster? In that time range, so they're not desperate for money, but they're thinking ahead, and they're being very methodical. And that also shows you that the entrepreneur is prepared and thinking through it, and and being very smart about it. And that was obviously that's a that's a good sign. Um, when I get the phone call, hey, I have one month left of cash. That's not really something I'd be looking at. Well, it's it's you're touching on the quintessential issue with venture debt or any any kind of follow-on equity investor too is that there's an adverse selection problem if the company's down to like three months of cash or even maybe even six months of cash, sometimes it's like, you don't know why the existing investors are not putting more money in or why the company let it get down that low. So, I mean, I always, our companies always have at least nine months of cash, you know, that's like the bare minimum, ideally like 15 to 20 months. But, but yeah, you, you touched on the point about the entrepreneurs planning ahead and coming to you maybe a year out and put, or putting it in a place when they raise their equity round, I think that's the really smart way to do it because then they know that they they can actually use the money confidently because they know they have a lot a lot of months of runway and they can kind of plan ahead. Th- those last minute phone calls, like you said, are just 
are just tough to handle. Yeah, and I would say, you know, folks like Cruz and, and groups like yours, I mean, that's, I like working with, because you guys talk the talk, you know, our talk, right? We, we get it, we get it. And you can say to them, hey, look, we've planned this out. We've run three scenarios and yeah, you're going to need to raise your next round in 18 months. Well, you need to raise, if you have the money in the bank in 18 months, then that means you're out fundraising at least six months and probably in COVID nine months. And so, yeah, you know, do you really want to be fundraising in nine months or eight months or six months? Um, yep. And that's when, but they need your help and they need to have good modeling and good projections and scenarios. And the worst thing is when you meet a company that doesn't have any of those things. And I, I that's why I always pull guys in like you. And I say, you know, you don't know. And I don't even know what my capital is going to buy you because you don't know what your true runway is. And, and things change. Uh, people miss plan and people are out of plan and things like that. But I think the most forward thinking and thoughtful companies, not just entrepreneurs and boards and VCs. And, and if, it's, if it's explained that way, I think venture debt's really a useful tool. And so that's why if, if I need a company and they don't have all the systems put in place, then I would love for someone like you, I'd love to introduce them and say, go work with a with a cruise or someone else like that to put this in place so you can thoughtfully plan for your because if your financing plan you know isn't in sync with your business plan that's when things tend to go wrong that's a really great quote there i totally agree and also it's like it kind of comes back to that like are the founders responsible and thoughtful people like if you haven't put your financial infrastructure in place and don't know your runway it's like I ima- I've been on the investing side too, but I imagine they're, you're thinking like, well, what else do, do I not know? That's right. You know, what else have they not done properly? And so like, it's not just about, it's, it's trying to fly an airplane in the dark because, you know, you don't, you don't know what's going on, but also the signals you're sending to folks like you is just, it's not a good signal to be, to not be organized and have everything set up. Like a question we get from, from people who are just coming to us, like a, a lot of times, not a lot, but sometimes they'll come to us that with the financing being a forcing function. Like, is there any negative signal value? Like, like if you're sitting around waiting for financials for two weeks, are you kind of going like, hmm, <laughs> what's going on here? Like, why, why don't they have their their house in order? Is that, or are you going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say like, okay? Let's do the deal, but get your house in order after after we get this thing closed. Well, I wouldn't do the deal until they had the. I mean, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't do the deal. I'd wait. I just say let's wait. And sometimes they're busy. Yeah. Sometimes there's a higher priority. Hey, I got to get my product launched, or or something, another product launched, or something has to be. You know, typically there's a lot of things going on in their business, and so I'm usually patient on that. I think, you know, the other day I had a call with an entrepreneur, and they said, "Well, I have some." basic financials here, but I want to get them in better shape. Do you want to see the ones now or do you want to see the ones that I'm going to put into better shape? And I always say, I'll wait. Because if you show me the ones that aren't great, I may just turn off and say, you're right, this company's not prepared. And, and totally. this is garbage. You know, So when you get yeah. garbage, you start to wonder, you know, what else, you're right, what else isn't going well? But also they just, they don't have an idea. They don't even know how, why they're taking my capital because they can't figure out what it's going to buy them. One feature of your fund that I really like is that you guys are, you're kind of the size where you're super complimentary to some of the other players in the venture debt ecosystem. And you want to talk about that a little bit? I designed the fund that way too, to say, uh, one, I'm always a person who likes to partner and, and have done that a lot in my past um, with folks like you, with, with lawyers, with accountants, with, uh, but also with 
um, and venture funds, of course, but on the venture debt side, the nice part is I'm not competing with, I don't have a big, large fund that's competing with the whole late stage and I'm not doing the full gamut of stages. So I'm just focused on early stage. And so, and, and particularly this seed and early series A stage, you know, I think it's appealing to groups like the banks and having spent some time with them where they're, you know, I think COVID again, they're moving a little bit more up, but they've never really been super comfortable with the seed stage round. So that three or four million dollar financing, they kind of want to see it be a little bigger and more meat on the bone and, and a bigger named VC possibly in the deal. And so I've said to them, hey, and I'm not in the banking business. So I'm like, hey, well, you keep the banking business. Um, I'm not in that business. Why don't you send me that? And then look, I'm happy to, to hand these over to you, not just for the banking business, but for the bigger Series A or B deal down the road. And so I think that part really resonates with that group. And then I think there's some other funds that are that are just have grown to be bigger and bigger. And um, they've said to me, hey, if we see some real estate stuff, we'll show it to you. If you see a later stage thing, show it to us. So I'm sending them later stage leads. And there might be something in between the two where we can actually partner and I could do a smaller piece and they could do a bigger piece and we could give the company what they're looking for. Um, so I think it's really advantageous and nice to have, to think about that, uh, the ecosystem and, and be open to partnering and uh, and working with people. Again, but those would be mostly people I've worked with before and know and, and groups like that. Yeah, that's a really, you made so many great points there because like sometimes the deal is just not quite a fit for a bank or even some of the big venture debt funds and they can kind of try to squeeze or maneuver into the deal working, but I think it's better for them and for the for the client, for the startup to work with someone like you who's perfectly sized for the opportunity. Like everyone's aligned. I, and I think the banks know that they're going to get another shot at the deal when it's a lot bigger. And meanwhile, like you made the great point about they get to retain the banking business, like the deposit business. Which is what they want. Yeah. And that's valuable for them. That's a really core part of their business. So I, I'm thrilled for you. I just think you have like a, such a good setup here. This is, I'm, I'm expecting that uh, this is going to be very successful. And then like two years from now, we'll be doing another podcast where you raise like a hundred million dollar fund or $200 million fund or something, something big. If you want to, you might want to just keep it, keep it at the size you have. Cause it's a, it's the perfect amount of money. You don't, you don't feel pressure, but you can also do enough deals. Yeah. Well, that's, I did design the fund to be smaller and, and didn't feel like, I had to raise you know, a gazillion dollars. Uh, I thought about those types of things, but I said, look, I, I really think this is a winning strategy. And and yeah, I'm focused on this fund and 100% on this fund and my head's down. So I haven't thought, thought much about the next step after that, but I think for now it's, you know, validate this strategy, which seems to be validated. Go out there and do make good investments and return capital and make money for my LPs is my number one priority. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Before we go, there's one other point that we were talking about before we turn the mics on, which is the companies get to work with you. They're not working with like the new associate who doesn't quite understand venture debt or doesn't quite understand startups. It's like, I think that's really special that they get to work with someone with your experience level who's who really, frankly, has seen everything, good and bad. You know, like, are you getting that kind of feedback in the marketplace? Oh, yeah, that's that's fun, too. And I don't have to sort of go, well, let me go back and check with my partnership or <laughs> you know, we have to go through an investment committee meeting or, you know, the bank has these layers of approvals, you know, which because it's a big organization. I mean, the bigger you are, the more you have to do that. It's not a it's not a bad thing. It's just that's what happens when you get big. So it's really nice to be able to sell, say to someone, they say to me, well, who's, you know, who's making the investment decision, who's monitoring the company, who's tracking it, who's, you know, who can I get help with? 
I'm like, I'm all the above. I'm taking out the trash. I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm literally from your working at your house. You're taking out the trash. Yeah, literally, literally. Or the, if when I get my office, I will. Um, but it's it's super, it's super nuts. And and yeah, I, I can't hand that off to someone else anyway. I want to make sure each investment I'm I'm working on and making sure I'm point on it and and that they feel they can call me. And you're right, I can give them more at least experience saying, Hey, I've, I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but I've seen this and I've seen that. And, you know, do you want help with this or with that? You know, can I make introductions, help you with your future financing, help you with your financials, you know, as you think through, you know, scenarios and things like that. So it is nice to be able to say, I can lean back on 25 years of experience. And that, that again, seems to be resonating. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, maybe you can tell everyone how to get a hold of you, how to reach top corner capital and, how to get a deal started, or even if they have a friend who's raising venture debt, how to get them in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, my emails are probably the easiest. It's just patrick at topcornercapital.com. And then I'm in the process of building, I have one basic website up there, but I'm going to build, I'm in the process of building a little bit more robust one that'll have also a contact page on it. But I think the best way is just to email me, and I'm usually pretty responsive and um, will promise to be you know, transparent and simple and straightforward with anyone who comes to me and tell them right away this fits or it doesn't fit. Um, and, and I think move quickly too. That's the other thing I've heard as I've talked to a lot of uh, VCs and micro VCs specifically, they're just like, Hey, how fast can you move? I was like, as fast as you want me to. So yeah, I think that's not because it's you, you're making the decision. Yeah, that's another big <clears throat> have all the experience to, to know what a good deal looks like and what one that doesn't fit looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And then to be able to, you know, paper a document and get it going. And I think that's the other advantage of venture debt. You know, it's not a long, complicated process. It should be pretty quick, especially at the early yeah. stage, especially at the early stage. Yep. Well, Patrick, I'm really happy for you. I'm proud of your success here and I look forward to working on some deals together and just kudos to you, man. You've, you've raised a fund and you're in just in a great position to succeed. Well, thank you so much. You've been a good friend and partner along the way, and I look forward to working with you guys. Awesome. All right, man. So when your troubles are mounting, in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Oh.